What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead this hour, the House divided. The second vote for a House speaker seems to fail, with Jim Jordan unlikely to secure enough votes once again. A top Republican strategist tells us how this should be resolved with stocks at session lows after that development. And President Biden visiting Israel today, pledging an unprecedented support package for the country, even as Congress is without a leader. We'll have all the latest. Plus, have you seen what's happening with bond yields? It's a major headache for banks, and the CEO of Hancock Whitney said on their earnings call that the historic move in yields is pressuring both consumer and commercial loan demand. He'll join us shortly to discuss. We'll also have regional bank analyst Chris Marinak here to react. Let's get a check on the markets, which continue to move lower. The Dow's down 278 points, nearly 1% now, greater decline than that for the S&P, 43.24 the level there. And the Nasdaq down 1.3%, similar for the Russell 2000s, which are also under pressure today. And here's, in some ways, the big culprit. Treasury yields keep moving higher throughout the session, and it's really across the board. Remember yesterday, the two-year uh, popped up to its highest level since 2006. 5216 is the latest. Today, the five-year joining that at a level we haven't seen since 2007, 493, let's call it. The 10-year right near session highs, it pierced above 490 this morning, and it's holding on to about 4.915%. And the 30-year long bond is above 5%. As for the 20-year, which is the highest across the uh, curve, we'll have that auction and those results momentarily. So we'll see if that does anything to relieve or exacerbate the pressure on bonds. As for the new safety trade, as Peter Bookvar called it here yesterday, it's working today, both crude and gold higher. Oil up 1.5%, while gold touching its highest level in nearly a month. Also, just quickly want to mention shares of Morgan Stanley, one of the worst performers on the S&P today, and now dropping about 8% on lower investment banking revenues. It's Morgan's worst post-earnings drop since its April 2009 report. But let's start this afternoon in Congress, the House going on 15 days without a speaker, even as President Biden is promising major aid to Israel. Emily Wilkins is on Capitol Hill. Emily, what's the latest? Well, Kelly, the House has just finished its second vote for Speaker. And once again, Jim Jordan has come short of the 217 votes that he will need. This time, 22 Republicans, two well, technically two more than last time, uh, voted against Jordan. And you saw a number of lawmakers flip their votes. You saw at least four who voted for Jordan before not vote for Jordan this time. But you also saw two who didn't vote for Jordan come back and vote for him. And so now Republicans are going to have to figure out what is next. Do they go to another speaker vote? Do they start taking other courses of action that don't involve Jordan as the nominee? We know that Republicans are going to be meeting uh, after this vote, trying to figure out the next path forward. Something that seems to be gaining a lot of momentum is giving Patrick McHenry, the acting speaker, the power to pass legislation. So think that aid to Israel, that $100 billion we're expecting from the White House, as well as government funding, because we are a month away now from another shutdown. And so there's some thought that if they could give McHenry 
just a temporary power to pass those bills. Republicans can then use that time to get together and figure out sort of a longer term path forward. But at this point, Kelly, it's just not clear whether we're going to see uh, 16, 17 or 18 days without a speaker. Uh, it's not 100 percent sure what's going to happen. It, it truly I, I feel like we've said this so much, but it truly is unprecedented and uncharted territory. All right. So he loses 22 versus 20 yesterday. Not a huge increase, but an increase nonetheless. Emily, thanks. What are the next chess moves here? Let's bring in Sarah Fagan, a Republican strategist. She's also an NBC News contributor and former White House political director under President George W. Bush. Sarah, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. So at this point, do they just empower uh, McHenry? Because if they try to elect him, I don't know if uh, I granted he'd have more power that way, but it just seems unlikely that, that it can get done. Well, he is an interesting consensus figure, well-respected by uh, all factions, uh, I think, of the Republican Party, including uh, former President Trump, which is not an insignificant person in this process. So, uh, but like, I think the smarter strategy for Congressman McHenry is to sort of ascend into this role as is this, um, you know, um, consensus choice, uh, even if some of the power of the speakership is limited, because the reality is this is likely, and I think this is what's happening for most members of Congress, they're looking at running for this and saying this is maybe a six-week job because when I have to push the conference to raise the debt ceiling in November, I'm likely to have the same fate as the previous speaker. And who wants to sign up for that? Right. And or so this, this potentially is a, an interesting solution that sort of gets the government what it needs uh, but has a leader in place. What are the further implications? We, we mentioned that President Biden uh, in Israel promised aid, but in order to do so, Congress has to authorize or approve it. And it sounds like the aid package under consideration right now could be $100 billion in size covering Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a not a good look for the United States that as the world is having so many challenges, we don't have a functioning legislative branch right now. And so something does need to, to get done. Um, Congressman McHenry is, is among the most gifted legislators uh, that exist in the Congress. So uh, it's actually an excellent choice for the, uh, for the government uh, and for the Republican Party. Uh, and so I have a lot of confidence in his ability to maneuver, but look, we're just not in a good place as a party, as a as a country right now, where there's so much division, and uh, you've got a handful of members uh, that uh, you know really have the ability to sort of stop progress, and that's very frustrating. And it's happening to Republicans now, and I suspect Leader Jeffries, you know, is looking over his shoulder, wondering what it would be like if he became speaker in two or four years. He's likely to face the same challenges. Right. And I want to mention the market tone has improved a little bit here in the last couple of minutes. But do you think that rising bond yields are tied to uh, the lack of uh, leadership in Congress? Where in Chris Christie, I don't know if you caught his interview earlier, uh, Squawk on the Street, it was, it was really interesting. But he kind of talked about the need to uh, get leadership in Washington that can push for uh, improvement on the fiscal front. And that seems like, you know, the very bottom of the barrel right now. My understanding is that the kinds of deals people want even to keep these speaker pro tems or whomever in place, a lot of them would increase, uh, you know, the amount of spending or at least not decrease it. So that seems like it might be hurting here. Yeah, like, I think, look, the, the most important factor here is uncertainty. You know, markets don't like uncertainty. People don't like uncertainty. Other countries, when they see uncertainty, 
you know, potentially strike. And I, I don't doubt that, you know, our dysfunction in Washington is having an impact globally uh, as well relative to people's actions, uh, uh, insurgents, terrorists, you know, uh, remnants of the communist, you know, Russia, like that all is having an impact and it undoubtedly is having an impact on the markets too. So certainty most important, but yes, like, you know, at the end of the, the at the end of the day, the country does need to figure out how to balance its priorities, which is certainly going to include aid to Israel, but how to also get its fiscal house in order. And that is a very tall proposition given the current makeup of the Congress. Yeah. But uh, we're going, both parties need to elect leaders who can do this. A tremendous challenge. I think it's going to shape the election if things stay the way that they are. Sarah, for now, thanks. We appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you, Sarah Fagan. Now to the latest from President Biden's trip to Israel. He met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his cabinet and pledged his unwavering support as tensions in the region escalate, including $100 million in new U.S. funding for humanitarian assistance in Gaza and the Israeli-occupied West Bank. This amid evidence from the Pentagon that Israel is not behind the Gaza hospital blast, which killed hundreds of people sheltering inside. Here to react is Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Ariel, it's great to have you here today. Um, your reaction to what the events that have taken place from President Biden's trip and, of course, the meeting with Arab leaders that didn't happen. Well, and the uh, failure of the Arab leaders to meet with President Biden um, is the uh, ultimate um, evidence of how weak they are, how ungrateful they are in great, because both Jordan the Palestinian Authority and Egypt are beneficiaries of massive American assistance. And at the same time, how Iran, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah not only are expanding Iran's dominance in the Middle East, but also are doing dirty work for Russia and China, pushing America out, attacking America's allies and the same Egypt and uh, Jordan may be next, as can be Saudi Arabia. So you read it as a U.S. weakness that we couldn't get this meeting with Arab leaders to happen. Why is that? Because these leaders are afraid of their own people. They're afraid of the street. Uh, yesterday, uh, before the blood was cleaned from the streets, Hamas and its propagandists um, in the Middle East and around the world, including in this country, including in the Western media, ran and put a, a blood uh, label on um, Israel, on the Jews, and said they did it, they killed, they spilled the blood, they lied about the numbers. The Gaza uh, Minister of Health is in fact a propaganda arm of Hamas as well as Ministry of Health. Uh, so uh, the propaganda uh, attack on the United States and Israel was massive, and only now they're trying to walk it back and retract it. But the damage was done. Biden did, didn't get the meeting. And uh, this is on these Arab leaders. So, and of course, things will only get more difficult as this ground offensive uh, begins. Why do you think it's taken so long? And what would you be watching on the Iranian front in the next couple of days? Uh, excellent questions. Uh, on the Iranian front, Hezbollah is uh, ready. Hezbollah is uh, the fully owned subsidiary of the Islamic Republic of IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. They're ready with up to 150,000 rockets that are bigger, 
nastier and have a longer range than the rockets from Gaza. And uh, on the ground offensive, uh, Israel needs to move fast. Israel has maybe, maybe a two-week uh, window uh, to move against Hamas leadership, against Hamas assets in Gaza, and those who support Hamas elsewhere in the Middle East. The chances of the war to broaden is something Mr. Biden is trying to avoid, yeah. because if Iran is involved, uh, if Iranian oil infrastructure uh, gets hit, uh, the oil prices would, will go up. Uh, I've seen numbers of $150 a barrel. I predict even possibly more than that. Uh, and that, of course, uh, added fuel for inflation, added fuel for renewal uh, or reduction of our GDP mm -hmm. uh, in the presidential election year. And uh, as you said, a two-week window certainly would feed into the urgency of the situation for now. Uh, Ariel Cohen, for now, thanks. We'll check back in soon. We appreciate it today. Thank you so much. How are Americans viewing the administration's foreign policy moves? That's the subject of CNBC's latest All-America Economic Survey. Our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, is here with those results. Steve? Yeah, Kelly, fascinating conversation ties right in. The American public, in the wake of this Hamas terrorist attack on Israel, strongly supports Israelis over Palestinians and U.S. military funding for Israel. But a significant share want both sides treated the same and the All-America Economic Survey finding support for President Biden at nearly all-time lows. 39% saying that they favor Israel over the Palestinians. That compares with 34% when we did the survey in 2014 uh, when there was a war in Gaza as well. Just 6% say they favor Palestinians. 36% though want that both sides treated the same. That is, however, sharply down from 2014. But notice that 19% are unsure. That's a sign perhaps that the situation remains fluid because of a lot of the things that Ariel Cohen and Kelly were just talking about. President Biden in Tel Aviv today promising an unprecedented aid package for Israel. The survey shows the public likely to support that. 74% saying that military aid for Israel is an important priority for the U.S. government, followed by securing the Mexican border, followed by humanitarian aid, or tied with it, actually. But 61% uh, supporting military aid for Ukraine. That's because of not a lot of support from the Republicans uh, party there. And 52% saying... Uh, Economic military aid for Taiwan is an important priority. Republicans and independents, they have these following priorities. One and two, securing the U.S.-Mexican border and military aid for Israel. But Democrats say military aid for Ukraine, that's the, they, they give that the most percentage uh, uh, support there, followed by humanitarian aid, followed by Israel in the third spot. The survey of 1,000 Americans around the country finding that all of this economic and geopolitical turmoil is costing President Biden support. Overall, 37 percent say they approve, 58 percent disapproving. Overall, with this presidency, that's the highest disapproval rating. 32 percent approving on the economy. I don't know if we have that particular graphic right there. Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. I could just give you the numbers there. 63 percent disapproving of his foreign policy and 31 percent uh, sir, on foreign policy, 31% approving, 60% disapproving. All this leading the survey to find former President Trump would beat President Biden in the head-to-head -head race by four points, 46 to 42% with 12% unsure, Kelly. So some interesting numbers here that leaves a base for what's going to happen next year, but also tells us right now about the support for Israel when it comes to that military funding package that 
might get through Congress if, of course, there's a House speaker. Exactly. Steve, thank you very much. Our Steve Leisman. Let's get to the market moving event of the hour. 20-year bonds went up for auction and uh, actually looks like stocks are off the lows, yields are off the highs. Rick Santelli, maybe it wasn't as much of a disaster as the ones last week. No, actually, it was not a disaster at all. We're talking about 13 billion 20-year bonds. It's kind of the oddity on the curve. We're adding into an issue that opened a month ago. Maybe more liquidity will help. The yield at this Dutch auction, 5.245, the highest yield ever for 20 years since they brought it back in May of 2020. And do remember, 5.245 was this auction. You know what we did a month ago? Basically, the 19th of September, when we opened this coupon, the yield was 4.592. In a month, it's moved that much. I gave it a B in terms of a grade, mainly because it priced so well. You know, sometimes we say that it priced out of the realm of the when issue market. This time, it stopped through, meaning it priced at 5.245. The when issue market was a base point higher. Lower yield, higher price were the sellers. But real quickly, many are saying, where's all this recent selling coming from? Why is that 20-year yield so much higher? I'll give you something nobody's really been talking about. The reverse repo market. It peaked in December of last year at over two and a half trillion, 12 zeros. You know what it was yesterday? The smallest amounts in SEP 21, a little under 1.1 trillion. So the parking lot is emptying of treasuries when yields are moving up. It is part of the fuel. And why is that? Let's make it real simple. Remember all those banks that had issues because they're not marking the market all these treasuries they're having such large losses on? And think about the Fed paying interest on reserves. Well, maybe it isn't even worth holding on to those interest on reserves. They're blowing out the positions. Where are they going? Into the secondary market. Kelly, back to you. That chart is a thing of beauty, Rick. You got to give me a copy of that. I'll tweet it out. Rick Santelli, we very much appreciate it. Some major ramifications of this move higher in yields lately for the housing market and for the 30-year average mortgage rate. Drum roll, please. Let's get to Diana Olick. Diana, we have a big headline this afternoon. Yes, I thought you were going to say it. I'll say it eight percent. The 30-year fix has jumped 20 basis points just this week as investors digest stronger than expected economic news. So now we have an eight handle. Compare that to just 3% two years ago. What that means for a person buying a $400,000 home with 20% down is they are now paying about $1,000 more a month today than they would have just two years ago. As for that economic data, housing starts rose in September with single family up around 3% for the month and nearly 9% from a year ago. Building permits, an indicator of future construction, were not as strong, up just 2%. But builders say they are using mortgage rate buy-downs to lure more buyers in and help them to afford the higher monthly payment. Roughly 75% of incentives being used today are those rate buy-downs, that according to housing analyst Ivy Zellman. Of course, higher rates continue to hit mortgage demand, applications for a loan to buy a home. Dropped 6% last week from the week before and were 21% lower than a year ago. Mortgage demand is now at the lowest level since 1995. And one note, Kelly, I'm hearing a lot, the word cash. Hmm. In what sense? People still have it or they're running out? They're using it to buy homes because they do not want to get in on an 8% rate. So anybody who's got cash out there, they're 
going in. The builders are telling me this. I actually got a text yesterday from the CEO of the Howard Hughes Corp saying that when after the report we did yesterday, Kelly, he said, I disagree. I see more buyers in, but they're coming in with cash. Yes. And we've heard sometimes multi-generational cash uh, involved in order to make these purchases affordable. Diana, exactly. thank you. Big headline today. We appreciate it, Diana Olick. Now to shares of Hancock Whitney, the regional bank moving lower after they beat on earnings for the third quarter, but said loan growth continues to moderate as, you guessed it, higher rates and insurance costs change consumer behavior. The company sees headwinds to future loan growth as well. Joining us now with more on the business is John Hairston, president and CEO of Hancock Whitney. John, it's great to have you here. I don't think you've been on before with us. Welcome. No, first time on the show. Thanks for including me. Down in, in the Gulf, as I understand it, uh, Mississippi area and so forth. And uh, we we're hoping maybe you guys have a, a different and, and better read on the economy. It may be a stronger one, but it sounds like you are experiencing some slowdown trends. Well, it, de it depends on which part of the footprint. I'm actually in San Antonio today. Uh, we open up our first San Antonio office to the ribbon cutting this afternoon, in fact. So many of the markets across our footprint actually have been quite well and good for growth. Uh, the slower parts of our market typically have very low pressure during downtime. So it's a healthy balance of high growth markets and stable markets. How long have you been in the business? Because this is a question I feel like is becoming more relevant than ever. Those who have lived through a couple of cycles with high interest rates arguably are going to have better institutional memory than those that haven't. So uh, how do you compare banking in these times with uh, what you've previously been through or not been through? You know, it's a great point. Uh, when we look at the ages of bankers and credit people across the industry, it's shocking sometimes to realize how many of the gray hairs left <laughs> during the pandemic. So uh, I've been in the business for over 30 years. I've been at this company 29. So uh, no stranger in the management team and boards, no stranger to cycles. This is just another cycle. The main concern, I mean, there are many. Um, we'll talk, you know, commercial real estate exposure. You guys think it's pretty limited. I was struck by the fact that Goldman CFO the other day on the call said they've impaired their CRE exposure by, you know, 50 percent. So just being extremely conservative. Is that your experience as well? No, uh, we've actually had pretty good luck with CRE so far. And, and by CRE, I'm referring to investor commercial real estate. And I think some of the comments you hear from other players are due to urban concentration in towers where there has been understandably a lot more pressure due to the, the lesser number of people working in those buildings. Our footprint, uh, while we do have some urban areas, we really aren't much of an office tower lender at all. We have less than, than one hand of, uh, of projects on our books, all of which are extremely low LTC. That's really interesting. So let's talk about the impact higher yields have had. I don't know if you found yourselves in the same kind of awkward duration position as some of your peers or how you uh, made those decisions at the time about what to do with your deposit uh, explosion if you were among the many banks that had one. Uh, what's the status today? Well, that's a great question. Back when the pandemic was in its go-go days and the government was putting a ton of money in, we were a PPP lender uh, supporting our business clients. And and clients of other banks that opted out to, of that program. So we did see a huge uh, in, inflow of deposits, but but we really are a conventional bank. The company celebrated its 124th anniversary last week. So we probably got more than our fair share of deposit inflows. And at one point in time, the free money component of our deposit book was actually 50%. Wow. 50% of all of our, our deposits were in checking accounts. So those are our real clients. So uh, this third quarter, as we've seen, the deposit cost increase mitigate a bit. We actually saw a pretty big reduction in compression in our margin. So I think we're beginning to see the coming out, the word, the wrong word of, uh, of getting better. We're beginning to see NIM compression ease. So the beginning signs of, of uh, NIM 
uh, stabilization. So what's the impact on the consumer, on some of the commercial business from higher rates? I, I have a hard time imagining that people can really handle 9 or 10 percent borrowing rates, whatever that figure is that would kind of help with your net interest margins going forward. I mean, it just it seems difficult. Well, well certainly we've seen a dramatic uh, downturn in the amount of big ticket purchases occurring. We don't see nearly as many people doing uh, you know, large purchases like they did back in the days where average account balances were so high. A lot of that excess liquidity has already flown out of the market. And in reality, we see the summer of 24 is when deposit average account size balances begin to move towards pre-pandemic normal. So we're, we're probably at the third, late third quarter of the game in terms of getting uh, people back to a normal spending habit. But, but I will say this, Kelly, and I know you, you mentioned this on one of your shows prior, the bigger pressure on consumers are really more housing. Hmm. Um, housing costs have gone up tremendously, um, and uh, and there's a lack of, of affordable housing in the country that makes it difficult for people in the hourly positions to to house their families. So I think what we're, I don't think interest rates are as big a strain on the consumer right now as the cost of housing and insurance. That's very interesting. Quickly, and I'm glad again you mentioned the cost of insurance. Obviously, we've seen what's happening in Florida and some of those markets. Quick final comment. Anything else you'd add in terms of regional dynamics, whether it's uh, what's going on with the energy space um, or, like you said, maybe it is just that insurance costs are one area to watch? No, I think only to say, I guess as you're wrapping up, um, much has been made about the notion of a hard landing or a soft landing in the economy. And I think we're headed to something more like a safe landing. Hmm. Um, certainly, there'll be impact from the uh, tightening of monetary policy, the increase in rates until inflation is better managed. But but it does appear to be a safe landing. And so I think while we're in a pause of moderated loan demand until deposit outflows stabilize in regional and larger banks, I think we're going to see that over the next few quarters or so. And then we enjoy the benefit of that safe landing. And all of our consumers and businesses enjoy the same when that happens. A nice parachute glide, uh, perhaps, you know, nothing, nothing too crazy. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for covering important topics. John Harrison with Hancock Whitney. Here with more on the regional banks as the KRE ETF is trading just a couple dollars above its spring crisis lows. Let's bring in Chris Marinak, director of research at Janie Montgomery Scott. Chris, it's great to see you again. And these are strange times. I think that John's tone summed it up well. You know, there's incredible pressure across the rates complex, and yet the banks are not uh, trading at all like we're in another period of crisis. But the valuations are still pretty low. That's correct. And we've seen most banks be very profitable this quarter, continue to move capital ratios higher. Tangible book value has declined about a percent and a half so far. That's consistent with what we thought. We think that there still are some pressure from interest rate marks, uh, not only for the uh, third quarter, but it looks like the fourth quarter will have more, just given where interest rates are today, Kelly. But generally speaking, the banks are moving forward. It could be so much worse. We've lived through times when the banks were uh, in a much worse position than they are today. Is all of this because they're getting kind of like a backdoor bailout from this Fed facility where they're taking some of the stuff at par that they never would have taken? You know, usually there's a discount. Uh, they currently had, I think those are often one year loans. And I don't know how much of the regional banks are exposed to that kind of funding that could, you know, come due in the next period of time. So it's very limited. It's 109 billion of the um, of the of the term funding program. That's only about 20 percent of what the banks have been borrowing year to date. So it's a small sliver. Uh, the Fed offers a nice relief valve. We certainly like that, um, but we haven't seen it change much the last six to eight weeks. Interesting. So then, can they withstand this period of time? And is it because there's this kind of implicit government backdrop on all bank deposits in America that itself seems like something we're going to have to revisit at some point? 
Well, the banks still have a lot of capital. They have a very good earnings stream. Uh, there's a lot of cash flow the banks have that really give them latitude to recognize risk. We think the risk changes this quarter have been very modest. Um, you know, Hancock and John speaking before had very little change in their uh, criticized and classified loans at the end of September, which is a positive. Other banks are seeing small upticks, but it really hasn't been anything dramatic. The this, this sector is moving forward despite the interest rate pressures and despite uh, sort of the lack of growth that we see right now. I think there's a lot of banks being careful, but by the same token, we're seeing increasing loan rates. We're seeing sort of scarcity of credit, which actually comes back to helping banks do business at higher yields. And finally, you like some of the acquirers for Citizens New York Community Bank. It's been a little quiet on that front lately. That's correct. Both will be out earnings next Thursday, the 26th. We think they're going to show a good deposit retention from the FDIC-assisted transactions. There's still a lot of cash those companies have to deploy. They're better off on the liquidity front as the regional banks have new liquidity and capital rules coming in next year. But generally speaking, I think it's going to be a very solid quarter for both of those. And I think many other banks, you know, the report tonight and the next two weeks are in a pretty good position. You know, cash flow is still king in the operating space, which gives banks a lot of latitude to kind of work through the credit risk that they continue to recognize. The safe landing, uh, be it, be it, may it so be. Chris, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Chris Marinak with Janny Montgomery Scott. Coming up from News Corp to Disney and VF, there's been a flurry of new activist investor campaigns lately. And my next guest says it'll only get busier from here. 13D's Ken Squire joins us next to explain what's driving this sudden uptick. And as we head to break, here's a look at markets well off session lows. In fact, we cut the declines about in half after that better than expected 20-year Treasury auction at the top of the hour, at least for the Dow, which is only down half a percent right now. The Russell 2000s are still underperforming down 1.4%, but the 10-year note has come about four basis points off its session highs and is back to around 488. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of News Corp, Allstate, and VF Corp are all up this week after activist investors announced stakes in those companies. Elsewhere, shares of genetic testing company Illumina are lower today after activist Carl Icahn sued the board for breaching their fiduciary duties. Investor activism is at an all-time high, according to S&P Capital. 850 campaigns were launched just in the first half of this year before the latest flurry. By comparison, the total number of campaigns last year was just 1,000. So what's driving this? What does it mean for for investors, let's ask my next guest, Ken Squire. He's the founder and CIO of the 13D Activist Fund and just hosted a summit on this topic yesterday. He is also a CNBC contributor. Ken, welcome. Busy times. What's driving it? It is, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Um, well, first of all, it, the, the, the 
three quarters of public companies have direct denomination windows between December and February. So now's the time you'll start seeing activists starting campaigns. Um, you know, our conference is, is somewhat seen as the kickoff to the activist season. We had more than a dozen new investment ideas yesterday alone, and, and we turned away people that we just couldn't accommodate because of time. So I wow. do expect to see a lot more activism. Why? Why? Well, well, first of all, it's been a successful strategy. Um, I think in high interest rates environments where management teams um, cannot finance their, their way out of, out of bad business plans through stock buybacks and such, it's a lot easier to get activism done. Um, when markets are down, it's easier to spot bad management and also to get other shareholder support. That's interesting. So actually, you're saying <laughs> the lack of kind of buybacks and financial engineering is making companies have to get more creative and, and giving activists a window of opportunity? Absolutely. Just expand on that then. Who else could be targets across the board here in terms of size or what would what are you watching? What what did you hear at the well, conference yesterday? Well, you know, you know, size doesn't matter anymore. It used to in activism 15 years ago, you couldn't you couldn't go on a mega cap company like a Disney um and 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 get anything done. Um now you can because activists are being more accepted. Um, they're, they're getting they're getting um, support from the large shareholders when they have a good plan. And any company that really is underperforming um, and and and, you know, for, for quarters, for, for several, several quarters of years, it could could potentially be a target of any market cap. Wow. So then if we should would you think this is all good for investors? Because, you know, when you think, OK, financial engineering buybacks, there have been people who argue that's, you know, positive depending on the price and others who argue um, that it's not so much. Same with deal making. A lot of these deals, people say they've been value destructive over time and it's all just, you know, overly creative investment bankers looking for fees. So is this all investor friendly? Are these moves and shakeups that that need to be made? Well, let, let's let me say one thing uh, clearly. Um, share buybacks is not a strategy on its own. When a company just buybacks shares without a plan uh, to create value or an operational plan, that's not a good strategy. When activist comes in and, and or a good activist comes in and suggests share buybacks, it's generally as part of a bigger plan where they feel that they can create shareholder value over the next couple of years operationally, strategically, um, or strategically, and they figure if they have excess cash on the balance sheet, they'll buy back shares ahead of that value creation at a lower price. Um, so, so that's 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 how we look at share buybacks and, and that's that's what the activists um, will, yeah. will, will get as part of that plan i just want to mention a couple of stocks here you said the three top ideas you heard yesterday were fortria concentrix and frontier is that right yes yes um fortria um is a global res uh, contract research organization um, they, they have 13% uh, EBITDA margins versus their peers at 18%. This is a growing industry. Um, they have a great CEO who has a track record of improving margins and creating shareholder value. And Starboard sees this as, as a $47 to $72 stock um, with if they can get their, peer, their margins and, and multiples to where their peers are. And Frontier, obviously, one of the biggest players uh, in the communication space. That stock down sharply as well, one to watch. Ken, we'll leave it there if that works, and we'll check back in soon as it sounds like you guys are going to be busy. Yep. Like, thanks for talking to me. All right. Ken Squire from 13D. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. Protests erupted in Beirut near the U.S. Embassy today. Lebanese security used tear gas and water cannon on the demonstrators as they shouted against Israel, threw rocks and waved Palestinian flags. 
Protests spread throughout the region following yesterday's attack on a hospital in Gaza that the Israelis say was perpetrated by Hamas and a dud rocket that landed near the facility. The Environmental Protection Agency reports it found that lead emitted from airplanes pose a danger to public health. Now the agency could set the first ever limits on lead fuel in aviation. More than 170,000 small planes use leaded gasoline, opening the door to a debate over how quickly airports can phase out this neurotoxin in their planes. And the NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell is extending his contract, keeping him in the league through 2027. Goodell holds the most powerful position uh, in American sports, and one of the most lucrative, by the way. Since taking on the role in 2006, he has boosted revenue to about $20 billion a year and navigated a booming expansion in many ways. League owners finalized the contract at a meeting in New York. Kelly, back to you. Quite a run uh, and more to come. Tyler, thanks. Coming up, Netflix reports earnings tonight with the stock coming off its worst month in a year and a half. We'll look ahead to the report and whether subscribers are pulling back on spending or if it's full stream ahead for the media stocks. And as we head to break, here's a look across the sectors as the market tone improved initially following that better 20-year auction top of the hour. But now we're sliding back towards session lows. Only energy and consumer staples, interestingly, are in the green. Usually rates are a headwind there, but we've seen some relief lately. Worst performers, materials, consumer discretionary and industrials. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. And you see stocks have headed back towards session lows. Also getting some news this hour that House Speaker Jim Jordan says he's staying in the race and has not yet decided whether to pursue a third vote. Remember, he lost 22 Republican votes in the second round that concluded earlier this hour. And there you can see the market tone as we head uh, back down with the Dow down 263 points. Meantime, Netflix reports after the bell today with shares up 18 percent so far this year. It's been rumored by some that they could hike prices again after the password sharing crash down likely boosted subscribers. And it's not just Netflix. According to the Wall Street Journal, the average cost of watching a major ad-free streaming service is up 25% in the past year, and Americans are paying nearly twice as much per month now as they did in 2018. Have we reached the limits of streaming price hikes that the consumer can stomach? For more on that, let's bring in Barton Crockett, senior media analyst at Rosenblatt Securities, and our own Alex Sherman. Welcome to both of you. Barton, first of all, do you expect any more Netflix price hikes? Because if anything, I've heard some angst that maybe the ad-free sub growth won't be as strong as as hoped. Well, look, I, I, I'm a little bit puzzled by uh, the transition to paid um, sharing, which I thought was kind of provide more of a subscriber lift um, than we've seen in the June quarter, which was the, the first quarter. Uh, I think this uh, September quarter of tonight is going to be really interesting to see uh, if it becomes more meaningful. Um, they, again, they talked about 100 million people who are freeloading and they're kind of start clamping down. Um, and our survey work would have suggested 40% of those eventually one way or the other would pay for it. 
but the sub growth we saw in the June quarter and the outlook for September quarter don't really jive with that. So, you know, maybe that kicks in or maybe not. Maybe what we're seeing is some price sensitivity. Um, and, um, um, and, you know, and I think that, that this could augur for um, maybe a different kind of um, 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 kind of moment for Netflix. They've been a go-go growth story, and we may be seeing some maturation of this market. And, you know, I think they're kind of raised rates. I think they're pushing by raising rates people more into the ad-based tiers. But um, I also think that there's a limit to how much you can do that in this environment with everyone raising rates, the consumer stretched, and the quality of the alternatives out there getting better and better. Yeah, and you've got a neutral rating on the stock as a result. Alex, what would you add to that? Because it certainly seems, you know, and the, the, the journal's figure is still that we're only paying about $30 a month across four services. So it's not exorbitant, but it's also not like people are entirely dropping the cable bunder either, especially as they strike more of these big combo deals. So if it just feels like an add-on and not necessarily a replacement. Yeah, over time, you'd have to imagine it will be a replacement, but we're still not there yet for tens of millions of Americans. The interesting thing we've seen, though, I mean, generically, if you ask the question, are prices going to go up? The answer is always yes. Right. Like, of course, they're going to keep going up. That's how companies make money. And these are publicly traded companies on Wall Street. But the interesting bifurcation we've seen, and it was sort of built in in your introduction, is that while we've seen a 25 percent increase on the ad free services, you're seeing almost all of these media companies trying to shift customers to the ad supported services because they actually make more money on an average revenue per user basis. I'm glad on the you said services. that because I've been trying to figure it out. What what do they really want? Do they want people to pay that higher 15 to 17 to $18 price point, is that more lucrative for them? And your answer is no, it's more lucrative as in the good old days to be on that ad tier. That's interesting. I mean, you might think that what they want is sort of a net neutral, right? Like let's figure out the exact price points here where it kind of doesn't matter if they're getting ad free or ad supported. And what companies like Netflix have seen, I think, is that maybe there's more room, there's more of a delta between the ad supported and the ad free than perhaps they thought. I think Disney has also come to that conclusion. So what we'll likely see is the price keep going up and up on the ad-free services, but maybe these companies purposefully keep the price low in order to make the shift a little bit more uh, uh, not only palatable to consumers, because they kind of seem like the good guys there. Hey, look, we're not raising prices. Totally. Just go over here. But also for advertisers, too, because as more consumers shift over to the ad-supported tier, the price for advertising can go up because the, there's more eyeballs there. Uh, I'm just going to scream in rage, Barton, because, you know, I, I like, obviously, the ad-free option. I understand the companies don't want that. And at some point, if the price point goes... And we're now just putting the genie back in the bottle. This is why people left, you know, linear TV in the first place was to go, hey, Netflix doesn't have ads. Well, it does now. Would you be happy if the streaming stocks had more people paying, uh, you know, or more people in general on the ad tiers going forward? Well, I do think that there's more of an opportunity on advertising longer term, right? Because I think that you can grow the ad revenues faster than you can grow subscription pricing to consumers, um, particularly in this environment. Um, you know, I do think, though, that the, that the question of how many people want this form factor of entertainment-driven subscription streaming video um, is, is an open question. And what we're seeing from the, the non-Netflix services is a big push, for instance, into sports, which is something that Netflix is really only kind of dancing around. Um, and I think in order for them to, to continue to grow their addressable market, they may need to make a bigger push into that. Also, generationally, consumers are, you know, younger cohorts are much more interested in the free user-generated content like you find on TikTok, like you find on YouTube. Yep. Netflix doesn't really play there. So I think there's some generational questions around the addressable market 
um, that are big, outstanding questions for Netflix right now. Alex, I'll give you the last word. And, um, you know, these stocks have been through a lot. The streaming business model has been called into question. There's been a lot of speculation about how much more deal making needs to happen in the next couple of years to consolidate these offerings. It'll be interesting to see if Netflix plays at all in the NBA rights that come up, to Barton's point, about seeing if they actually get into live sports a little bit. Uh, as they look to push their ad tier forward, adding some live sports elements, there is an obvious fit, right? These are live events. They are sort of the premium advertising events. It's one of the reasons why Netflix has never gotten into it in the past. Now they have this ad tier, so maybe that is sort of room for them to grow. But there's no doubt to your broader point, Kelly, that there's going to need to be another round of consolidation with all of the players here. Uh, we haven't seen it yet, whether it's Paramount Global that goes first or Warner Brothers Discovery or even per perhaps our own parent company, NBC Universal, right. gets involved there. That's probably in the next, I'm going to guess here, two years that we see the next round of this happen as these smaller guys look to compete with Netflix, which is still by far the dominant streamer in the world. Yeah, I think of reports today, uh, I can't remember if it's Apple or Amazon looking at those NBA rights. As, as you've pointed out, one of the last major sports deals really up for grabs in the near term. So I love watching them getting in a bidding war amongst themselves as well. For so, does, so does the NBA. Yeah, I bet it does. Alex, thanks. Alex Sherman and Barton, we appreciate it as well today. Barton Crockett will hear from Netflix after the bell. Coming up, three other names also reporting tonight. Tesla, lost Vegas Sands and Lamb Research. We'll get you a preview and those trades with Tesla down more than 4% now and having the second biggest drag on the SPY ETF today. We're back after this. Welcome back. It's time for Earnings Exchange. And today we've got the action, the story, and the trade on Tesla, Las Vegas Sands, and Lamb Research, all reporting after the bell, I believe. CNBC contributor Jeff Kilberg is here to give us the key points. He is CEO and founder of KKM Financial. Jeff, welcome. Got to start with Tesla. Shares have still more than doubled so far this year. Deliveries and price changes will be key to watch, and the street isn't too optimistic. B of A cut its estimates, saying uh, on the automaker, while Barclays is expecting, quote, soft results amid times of soft margins. Of course, we want to hear what Musk says on the call. Um, yeah, this stock is down 4% today, one of the worst in the S&P. What would you do with it here? You know, I want to be a buyer here, Kelly. I've been long the name since last December. And yes, the street's looking for 72 cents a share on about $24 billion in revenue. But you're right. We're going to be focused on what that revenue will look like next year in 2024. But right now, you have to look at this either through the, an automotive lens or an AI lens. And I think when it's trading at 70 times P.E., that's pales in comparison to what NVIDIA is trading in, and I like it here as an AI play. I think you can actually approach this right now with the volatility. You can sell a put. You can sell a 245 put right here, collect over $8, Kelly, expiring Friday. So you're getting paid if you want to own Tesla, and I do. All right. What about Las Vegas Sands? Very different story here. Shares are down more than 30 percent. So just that since it's 2023 highs in early May just tells you how different a tone things have now. Deutsche highlighting the recovery in Macau, uh, also in their mass gaming revenues and hotel occupancy. All of those, they say, will be key factors to watch today. Would you be a buyer of this stock? You know, I'm not a buy here, and I don't want to be a hard seller here, Kelly, but at the end of the day, we have to see what transpires and what that revenue out of Macau as well as Singapore looks like. But it's dragged the broader market. And if you look at a longer metric in five years, not to give you a little Halloween pun here, but it's been a zombie stock. <laughs> Hasn't gone anywhere in five years. So I want to stay away from this. But they do have a strong cash position. They do have a decent balance sheet. So I'm not going to hate on anybody who's long here, but I just don't want to own it. No, there's the five-year chart down 20% really during that time. So it's just been a, a slog. How about Lamb 
some research. Chip stocks have been under pressure lately, of course, because of those China import controls. But Lamb shares it's more of the designer. They're up 55 percent so far this year. And those restrictions, plus the recovery in memory chips, are going to be you know, things investors are watching after the bell. Would you want exposure here? I think you can get exposure here. Yes, it's had a great year, but it really correlates. If you look at SOXX, it's outperformed stocks, but at the end of the day, it had a rough 2022. But when you talk about some of its biggest clients, Lamb Research's biggest clients are Micron, Intel. That's everywhere everyone wants to be positioned. So I think owning the fabricator makes a ton of sense, at least the equipment that provides those chips to be made. So yes, I want to be a buyer here, Kelly. It makes a ton of sense to continue this exposure to semis as this AI theme will recur and revert back to enthusiasm, I believe, Q4 as we go into the Santa Claus rally. I know Santa Claus rally has not been said yet on CNBC today <laughs> with all the red out there, but I think you want to own this name. Well, that actually brings me to my next question. You know I can't resist, especially on a day like this, Jeff. We start with a you know an okay tone to the markets. We sell off sharply. We come back after the bond auction. Yields are popping across the curve. What do you make of it? Well, Kelly, I cut my teeth in the bond pit. You know that back in the 1990s. And it's just remarkable to see the sensitivity that equity traders are having to the bond market. So we continue to look for the bond market for leadership. We continue to look for the bond market for sensitivity of what's going on in the Middle East. But I do believe we are at peak rates in the 10-year and the 30-year. We saw the mortgage rate hit over 8%. It's the first time it's happened in over 20 years. So I think we're going to see that relent. But my thesis on being long, not just the market, but some of these tech-sensitive names like a Tesla or a Lamb Research, is on the fact that I see the 10-year note going back back under four and a half percent due to the fact that the Federal Reserve will not raise rates. There's no chance uh, per the CME FedWatch tool that they're going to raise rates in November, just right. in 14 days. But it also looks like it's a less than 40 percent chance in December. So I think the Fed has to sit on their hands or they'd be quite ignorant if they didn't. Yesterday, it felt like rates. it was a classic macro rates trade Fed. Today, I'm not so sure. Today, it just feels like the whole thing's, you know, untethered. Yeah, it's a roller coaster, and you're seeing exaggerations. You're seeing people still reposition their portfolios. But I think we have to look for bond leadership, specifically at the long end of the curve, and some indication out of the Fed that they understand that they can't move rates much higher here. I know they're not getting the results they want yeah. in the data, but they are going to sit on their hands. All right, Jeff Kilberg, as always, thank you. Like the pumpkins as thank well, you, sir. Kat. We'll check back in soon. Yes. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people.